This is Betty LeVette, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. When I heard she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was something about those cats that looked so alien, the, 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 the cuts, the way that the Cuban heel boots, the suits. The accents, everything, it was so alien, and yet it was so familiar at the same time. You know, growing up in predominantly, uh, I guess, black culture at that particular time. But the music seemed to fit so perfectly into the culture, as well as to white culture. It just felt like something ordained by God or some shit. Today's guest is Sanandra Matreya, who began his career using the stage name Terrence Trent Darby. Sananda is an American singer and songwriter who came to fame with his blockbuster debut studio release, Introducing the Hardline, in 1987. Sananda was born as Tarrant Trent Howard in Manhattan in 1962. His mother is Francine Howard, a gospel singer, teacher, and counselor of African-American descent. Francis Howard married Bishop James Benjamin Darby, who became Sananda's stepfather and raised him. Sananda trained as a boxer in Orlando and in 1980 won the Florida Golden Gloves Lightweight Championship. After enrolling at the University of Central Florida, he quit and enlisted in the U.S. Army where he served in the 3rd Armored Division near Frankfurt, West Germany. While there, he worked as a band leader with the group The Touch, releasing an album of material called Love on Time in 1984. In 1986, he left West Germany for London where he briefly played with the Bojangles. There, he teamed up with producer Howard Gray and signed a recording contract with CBS Records. Sananda's debut solo album, Introducing the Hardline, was released in July 1987 and generated several hits, including If You Let Me Stay, Sign Your Name, Dance Little Sister, and the number one smash hit, Wishing Well. The album earned Sananda a Grammy Award in the category of Best R&B Vocal Performance in 1989 and a Brit Award for International Breakthrough Act. He also received Grammy and Soul Train nominations for Best New Artists. Sananda's critically acclaimed new album, Pandora's Playhouse, features such standout tracks as Don't Break My Balls, In America, Her Kiss, One Horse Town, and a breathtaking musical homage to Prince. Welcome, Sananda Matreya. Perhaps we could kick things off today by going back to those very early days in your life when you emerged as a kind of multi-instrumentalist. My beginnings are very, very simple. I, I was born in Harlem. Um, 
I, which I consider to be an immense privilege because there are certain vortexes on earth that history has proven have given great value to the earth. So I was very, I'm very grateful that, you know, karma saw fit to place me there uh, in, in the womb of Harlem to get that stamp that it has given uh, culturally to our nation and to the world. Um, by the time I was two years old, we were living in East Orange, New Jersey. And that is when I had my spiritual awakening at the age of two. And my spiritual awakening was provoked by two songs. She loves you and I want to hold your hand. And I wasn't allowed to listen to any music that wasn't gospel music until I was 15. But the Beatles were so ubiquitous in that area at that particular time that it was like you, you, it was bleeding through the walls. You couldn't contain it. And literally, that, that's my earliest memory. I have vague notions and recollections, perhaps suppositions before the age of two. But when I first heard the Beatles, that's it. it I was awakened and I knew my life purpose was very clear cut and direct. From that moment on, whatever it meant, I wanted to be a Beatle. Uh, so that's the earliest, literally, I mean, I'm not saying this because, you know, I'm talking to you, which I feel like it's about time for me to unburden my great debt to them in this particular way. Um, but, yeah, when I when I heard she loves you, yeah, 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 it was something about those cats that looked so alien, the, 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 the cuts, the way that the Cuban heel boots, the suits. The accents, everything that was so alien, and yet it was so familiar at the same time that it was utterly captivating. You know, and uh, the way also, you know, growing up in predominantly, uh, I guess, black culture at that particular time, the way also the music seemed to fit so perfectly into the culture as well as to white culture, it just felt like something, something ordained by God or some shit. You said uh, that you realized your mission was to be a Beatle, whatever that was. I guess that changed over time, right? That never changed. Part of the mission of the Beatles was to spawn more Beatles. That was their job. That's what saints always do. That's, that's their job. The point of, of Christ was to, was to basically spawn the understanding that within ourselves is this. So go out there and be this. So for me, as much as any other responsibility given to those particular souls who we recognize as the Beatles, it was to be fruitful and multiply. You, you will. How can you not produce others when they were that fertile, when they were what they were? So, you know, I'm, I'm Generation X, I guess. Uh, so they, they were our fathers. They were the ones that came um, and kind of said, you know, put the put the sword on his shoulder and said, "Arise, uh, Sir Lancelot, and go forth and kick some ass." So that never changed. I, I I still feel like a spawn of the Beatles. What was the uh, What was the first instrument you picked up and began playing? Um, drums, because they were at the time the most accessible, um, and then uh, keyboards. Because at one point when I was living in Daytona Beach, I can remember we had an organ, a little Lowry home organ in the house, which my mother used to practice on. And so um, basically when no one was around, I would try to you know, get something out of it. 
excuse me. So I guess I was about four when I first started playing drums, six when I first started playing uh, keyboards. Um, I then, like around the age of eight, I remember around the time of the Apollo Moon mission, a great uncle of mine, who was my mother's uncle, had given me an acoustic guitar. And it was like one of those kind of big Bill Brunsy type guitars. And it, I was at the time, it was I was too small. It was too big for me. You know, the action wasn't necessarily great. So it was literally like trying to figure out Sudoku or something, you know. Um, so my mother made me give it back to him since I wasn't getting on with it. But I, I just I just put a, a bookmark in it and figured I'd come back to it later. When I was about 15 or 16, uh, a friend of mine, went away for a couple of weeks with his family on vacation and asked me his bass, a Fender Precision bass. Um, and I remember falling in love with it within the two weeks that I have it and already had picked up the rudiments of at least, which, you know, uh, which allowed me to continue after I got one for myself. Um, and then finally, I guess around 24, was when I was able to actually afford uh, uh, to buy guitars and uh, so that's when I started when I resumed playing was yeah about 24 is when I picked up the guitar and so in a way you literally grew into the guitar um, absolutely also because I didn't have to start on an acoustic I could afford to start on an electric which made it easier then of course I went you know, to the acoustic and, and took everything uh, I I I love them. I, it's it's for me not just an amazing instrument. It's symbolic and, I, and iconographical in a in a way that um, it just moves me. And like I like I going back to the origin story. It's when I first saw the Beatles. It was you know it was also why so many people started playing guitar. They made playing guitars look like an essential thing to one's identity. It was just you you couldn't fuck with that. I fell in love with guitar then as a, as not only a true value instrument, but as a symbol of liberation and freedom and, and a magic carpet, something, a magic wand that could take you into other realms and other spaces. Because that's what, that's how it affected me. You know, the sound, the way it played, you know, um, I, 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 I still have, you know, when I play, I'm still heavily, heavily influenced by George Harrison uh, and Keith Richards, differently, but his approach because you know George never outsmarted the music. George never gave the music anything it didn't need. He always stayed perfectly within the arrangement. He was a very tasteful player, and um, I, I just I just love the way he he played the instrument and how it just perfectly suited the needs of the song as opposed to the ego of the guitarist. Um, so he was a seminal influence um, on, on my playing, and not just my playing, you know, guitar, but just the approach I have to, to making music. I think that is the uh, the shrewdest uh, description of George I think I've ever heard. The idea that he didn't outsmart the song, and we could say that about Ringo too, right? He didn't pepper you know a track with his fills. He he served the track. Listen, I I'm, I'm, I started playing drums really early. I used to even teach drums at one point when I was a kid. So, you know, I was considered a prodigy at one point. Um, I gave it up for a few years to focus on other things. But I say all that to say this. You listen, your ears, you listen. And what Ringo plays is very simple. But even professional drummers can tell you, 
actually trying to play his shit is not as easy as it may appear. Like objects in the mirror may be closer than they appear with Ringo. Because literally, there it's not just his drum patterns. There's a feel that that brother has. There's a, there's a, there's a touch. There's a swing. There's a particular swing Ringo has that you just can't imitate that shit just because you heard it. You have to have it. You have to have it. And, um, you know, for all the flack lately, it's, of course, it's, you, you know, it's, it's now become part of heresy where we now question, you know, was Ringo really as good as we thought he was and, you know, all that old bullshit. But again, I, I've sat down and, and, and played Ringo and it's not just something you pick up just because you can play the drums. There is, he, he, you know, but anyway, look, what this applies to all of them. Individually, John was no technical fucking virtuoso. You know, probably the most advanced musician in the band was George and Paul. But when you have a magic, when you have a vibe, when you have the spirit, the Holy Spirit working with your shit, you don't need all that extra stuff. You don't need to be clapped. You need to be clapped more necessarily when you don't necessarily have that basic fundamental thing. Plus, Master Clapping was never in a group like that anyway. I, I worked with an A&R man in England called, uh, he's a legend in his own field, called Muff Winwood, the brother, older brother of Stevie. And um, they were in the Spencer Davis group together. And he told me um, that he can remember walking into Abbey Road uh, to deliver a message or something or pass something on to the sessions. And he said, when you walked into the room, he said there was an unmistakable electrical magnetism. It was an unmistakable energy when those guys were together. That, you know, he's, he's seen tons of bands. He's been with tons of situations. And, you know, but he, he, I remember being very moved by the fact that he said, basically what, confirming what they had was not some bullshit. It wasn't, it wasn't just manufactured. There was a true chemistry that those dudes had that collectively made them greater than the sum of their parts. But, you know, Ringo's no fucking joke. I can promise you that. Well, absolutely. And when you listen to songs like Strawberry Fields Forever, you know, in that, that wonderful coda, that kind of hesitant playing style he has, you know, I, I've tried to play it. And if you if you don't play it perfectly, it sounds like you're you're lagging, but he does it and it it serves the song. And he keeps time like a motherfucker, which is basically what it's about anyway. You know, he was a he was a great timekeeper. When you know you can lean back on on the rhythm, it just takes the state. Uh, as you know, it takes the magic to a different place. So, you know, I'm I'm I was greatly influenced by all of those bitches. I was, you know, uh, probably the most influential bass players for me was Paul uh, Jamerson and and um, Boot maybe Bootsy. You know, but but for for me, you know, since the Beatles never hit the fact that they were both. Um, mentored by Motown, as well as considering considering them competitors, um, you can hear Jamerson's influence on Paul. But again, Paul brought some shit to it, an element to it that again always perfectly fit the song and what the song required. So it's another way of saying that they were, as well as great songwriters, they were also great orchestrators because the music was always there to serve the song. In the sentiment of the song, and not necessarily the, the uh, individuated egos of of its creators. When we return, we'll talk about songwriting, Prince, 
and Sananda's latest album right after these messages. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Everything Fab Four, and we're back with Sananda Matreya. In terms of songwriting and musicianship, what was that like for you as a listener and a, a budding musician? Well, first of all, taking nothing away from the fact that they took complete advantage of their opportunity, I, I am quite certain that, they, they, that there was a certain space held for them because of what they represent. See, the great fortune the Beatles had was that the British Empire understood right away what they had that basically without having to send armies abroad to colonialize and conquer, they now had a soft weapon of such great power that they understood that even the state had to invest and protect this band. Because like I said, they sold guitars, they sold amps, they sold shoes, they sold wigs, they sold records, they sold Britain. The thing is, they absolutely were protected. There's no doubt about that. But again, let me just say this and come from my heart. And I say this to my to my friends. White privilege is karma. And we have seen history greatly blessed by those who have used their white privilege to enlighten and share and lift others. We've also seen the very selfish use of white privilege to do completely the opposite. So I say that because, you know, what the Beatles were allowed to get away with, nobody else was going to get away with that shit but the Anglos. But we're also grateful that the right bitches were sent to fulfill that role because, as they proved, they took from everything, they grew from everything, and they presented it to everything. Their music had no prejudice in it. So if you talk about how to, for me, how to use white privilege, how to use Anglo-Saxon privilege, that's how you do it. The heart of their music was a, it was a generosity. It wasn't just the tunes. It wasn't just the way they used harmonies and this and that. They were growing... And they were listening to their contemporaries just like everybody else. But it's, well, the unmistakable thread that runs through it is that there's a humanity. There's a soul. You know, for example, when you listen to A Hard Day's Night, for me, person again, that's the arrival of the white blues. There it was. That's it. That's it. They nailed it. He hit it. That's it. That's how you take the blues that they were influenced by and all of that shit, and you put Liverpool on it. You put some white shit on it. And now, and, and, and you mean it. And it's, of course, you know, Lyndon also had the great advantage of being Irish, of Irish stock. That doesn't hurt when it comes to being able to put your soul across. Because them some soulful bitches, they know what it's like. So, you know, you listen to A Hard Day's Night, and it's like, that's it. That was the birth of something you could feel that was finally... Finally, they've done it, Lord. Finally, they've taken what we were sent to give them and they've applied it to themselves and it's come back at us like this. That, that, that for me, how they use their position, their privileged position, to still not cheat bitches, to still not ride the coast on their bicycle. They were constantly moving. They were constantly expanding. 
They were constantly pushing. Yes, they were given the right to do that, even other artists of their own time and place were not. So they had the right record company, they had the right producer, they had the right everything. But they certainly had the British government smart enough to say, give these boys what they need, because these boys have promoted us like no one has since fucking Churchill. So, you know, like I said, they were given a magic carpet and they could have they could have fucked it up. A lot of people take their privilege and abuse it. But they didn't. They delivered. They delivered the goods. And this is why I've always had a religious sense about them. I, I, I literally think that St. John, St. Paul, reincarnation of bitches that have already served humanity, which is why they were as big as they were, because we recognized them. That, that part of the Beatles' success was that when they came, they were these strangely familiar bitches. One of my favorite parts of their story is when they go to India to grow their knowledge, to learn about karma, to learn about nature. You know, think about that, right? How many rock stars take a break, and they didn't take that many, but how many take a break to go and expand their knowledge base so that they can make their next album, the White Album, right? I mean, I find that remarkable. Yeah, but let's be honest. After about a couple weeks, they got bored with that shit and used the time basically to write songs and hang out and, yeah, kind of pay a bit of attention. Look, what the Beatles found out is that what what they needed to have, Spirit had already given them. Sometimes we just need to confirm that. You know, sometimes we just need to listen to other lecturers and realize, you know what, this is interesting, but this is what awakened me back up to the fact that, you know, I, I have this. I mean, John Lennon, whether he was comfortable with it or not, he was a guru. He, he was a spiritual leader. It doesn't matter if he was comfortable with it or whether he thought that way or not. That's the effect he had. The thing is what it is. The thing is what the effect it has. If it produces awakenings, you know, you were talking about the progression of the music. Yes, it was like they, continued, they just continued to awaken out of a sleep more and more until they became these fully awake beings who then after having awakened realized there wasn't a hell of a lot more to do because the whole point of the journey as the Beatles collectively was to document the process of awakening. And having done that, there was nothing else to do but haggle over money and shit. I've noticed that um, previously you've cited the White Album as perhaps being um, one of the the all-time great records. What is it about that album that keeps you coming back? (laughs) There's 30 songs on it, and I'm in love with 28 of them. What? Why not 30? Rocky Raccoon and Don't Pass Me By are the only songs I'm not in love with. Who can do that in a strictly commercial kind of realm of medium where all the pressure is on you to define what commercial is? So that's another advantage they had. They were they were kind of among those privileged few allowed to define what was and wasn't commercial. But the White Album is brilliant because, of course, after the, all the, the, the psychedelic, psychedelic period and after all of that, you know, it just came back down to them listening to the band and these other guys and going, yeah, we probably would also benefit from removing some of the bombast, you know, because again, you can only, they scale that mountain. By the time they finished um, Pepper, where where else could you go with that? You know, you can only turn the studio inside out at that point. What's a good example for you of that? I'm so tired. You know, Lennon would like take bits of songs that weren't complete and he would just slap those bitches together, which again, 
you know, was exactly what uh, Brock and you know, Picasso and those guys, you know, had influenced at the time. The art was there with, um, you know, that, that whole period where that's what they were doing, taking found objects and presenting them to you so that you could make sense of what they were. So, you know, in its own quiet, rustic way, the White Album was easily as innovative as Sgt. Pepper. It just took the opposite approach. And so, um, and happiness was a warm gun. I mean, just, it's just, it's beyond words. You know, and there's just this stuff that, uh, and God, Silverwood Truffle, are you kidding me? You know, that, that arrangement, that performance, I mean, you know, let, let's talk about George as a writer because, again, people are sleeping on the fact that, you know, well, George wasn't exactly as muscular a writer as John and Paul. Fuck that. First of all, George's writing just came out of the East anyway, even before he went to India. This cat was like coming from a different melodic space. He was coming from more like, you know, John and Paul were coming from more of a, a traditional, you know, the Vienna school, you know, um, Haydn, you know, uh, Mozart. Beethoven, Schubert, George was coming from like um, like Debussy and these bitches, man. He was coming from a completely different space. His melodies were more feminine. They were more something like the other side of the brain melodies. But his shit just rocked. Even early on as a vocalist, he seemed to be in that groove. Is it really something I got to do? Because I only want to dance with you. Just to dance with you. Bum, bum. He's everything. Shit rocks. In every great story, in every great love story, which the Beatles were to our culture, you know, some, some of the elements take a bit of time and tour and for us to get used to. Because, of course, John Paul and all of that dominance kind of, you know, took most of our attention. But, um... George was just something of another order and you know he wasn't just a master musician he really was um, he was like the quiet virtuoso he wasn't you know trying to like you know out speed the fastest guy in the west and that bullshit he brought a sensibility to it and an unerring sense of melody and an unerring sense of measure you know and again his songs you know I, I still find myself warming up sometimes and in, in, Next thing you know, I'm playing All Things Must Pass. That I was just thinking about that song. We must be on the same wavelength. because That is like the greatest of poems, isn't it? He was the one I had the privilege of meeting. Now, here's a story for you. Um, I have a daughter. I have, we have two sons, me and my wonderful wife, Francesca. Um, but I have an English daughter who's 32. And uh, her name is Serafina. And right um, after she was born or uh, something, I, I had gotten another, we were living in Knightsbridge at the time, and I had gotten invested in another place in Chelsea. And uh, we were having a fight once. I just said, fuck it. And I went to the place in Chelsea. And so, um, you know, uh, this particular lady, my, my, um, my, my, my daughter's mother, was about a decade older than, than me. So she was pretty savvy. You know, she said, oh, whatever, let him go. So the next thing you know, like I get a call from her and ask me where something is that she's looking for in the house. And I'm hearing music in the background. And then I'm hearing my piano being played. And I'm like, you know, who the fuck is that playing my piano? And she said, you know, nonchalantly, like it's every day. 
oh, it's Don Henley and Tom Petty. I'm like, what? You know, I did like a, 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 a Bugs Bunny. And she said, oh, yeah. It's just like Tom Petty. I said, what's going on? She says, I'm having a, a cocktail party. Yeah, I'm having a cocktail party. And, okay, so who's there? And she said, Tom Petty, some of the Eagles, um, uh, this guy, that guy, Laurel and Cream, uh, and George Harrison. Dude, I live about four blocks from there. I swear to God, Carl Lewis could not have beat, outrun me to that place when she said George Harrison. I mean, I was like, like a cartoon I ran. Of course, right before I got to the door, I stopped, caught my breath, tried to compose myself so I look like a fucking coyote. And um, I got inside the house, introduced, you know, I was introduced to everyone. And then the next thing you know, and, and, and this was a mystical experience for me, George and I excuse ourselves. We go up to uh, my bedroom and we sit on the floor opposite. Like, this is a natural thing. This isn't like some planned thing. We sit on the floor opposite each other, cross-legged in yoga position. And we were there for about five minutes by ourselves before Madame Olivia came in um, just to see where he went, what was up. I swear to God, dude, for five minutes, I don't remember saying anything to him. And I don't really remember him saying anything to me except one thing, which I'll take to my grave. Uh, but the whole time, it's just like we, it was just like we were looking into each other's eyes, exchanging some shit. It was, it was, it was weird, but it was like, this is what I was supposed to receive. Cause look, my, my, my thing is simple. Um, these guys, for me, are like lords of, a new, lords of a new religion. They kind of were the update of Christianity for, for me, for like my situation. So these are my saints. These guys are my gods. And I, I know for a fact that when gods recognize that they have genuine disciples, they leave them a little something. They pass a little something on. Here, take this. Because I know you're sincere. Because I've heard your work, and I can hear us in you as well. It's really quite quite a remarkable tale. Your new album uh, really packs a punch, but the way you modulate that energy is uh, one of the most interesting aspects of it. You know, from from your reading to Time Is on My Side to many of the great new original pieces, even to that last song where you modulate your energy to to give us a, a perfect memorial to Prince. Uh, can you tell me about how that that beautiful piano piece came about? Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, he, and he appreciates it. I, as I've alluded to before, I, I Western civilization and Western religions teach death. I'm a Native American. And in our cultures, we don't teach death. We don't believe in death. We believe in transformation. We believe a thing serves its purpose as a vehicle. We use it. And then, you know, at the appointed hour, we move into other vehicles that are awaiting or that we can also pour our energies into. So as, as crazy as I know it will make me sound, and I, I completely respect that, I, I still have a relationship with the spirit of, of John. I, I still have a relationship with the spirit of George. Because what is most vital about them has never left us. 
the only thing that left us was the fart bags. You know, is the, the, the stuff that gets old is filled with pain, becomes filled with bitterness and anger. This this the thing that we outgrow, the pupa. And then boom, we're off to the next space. But I very much believe that they're still in contact with us. And I very much believe that those of us who love them and regard them and can see who they are do receive their favor and assistance. I um I, I regularly petition my heroes and idols when I'm making music to stop by and help me. You know, sometimes they have like they're still dealing with music. You know, music isn't just a physical thing in our universe, it's a vibrational truth all over existence. So I'm sure they have ideas from, from time to time and just give them to one of their people and say, here, I got this idea for you, you know. Um, and I, I say that to say that, you know, with, with, with Prince, we even when he was living, we had a very powerful and close telepathic relationship. We literally knew when the other was thinking of or trying, or trying to get in contact with each other. And sometimes it was just sufficient to know, okay, he's thinking of me or he just sent me some vibe. Because I just, I just thought of it. It just popped into my mind. Nothing just pops into your space out of nowhere. All energy has origin. So, you know, for, for me, I, as I get older, I'm able to live that the dream of there is nobody to censor my work. There's nobody to tell me what my limits are. There's no pretense of the market and what it can or cannot handle to basically be used as a way to, to limit my, 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 the vision I have for my music. Like I said, I'm a, I consider myself a spawn of perhaps the greatest, you know, pop songwriters that, 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 have, that have yet lived. And so, you know, it's like when I listen to music, I'm listening, you know, to Bach, I'm listening to Beethoven, I'm listening to Mozart and Schubert and Haydn because these cats understood the mathematical truth of the architecture of what they were doing. So staying in contact with that, it just it, it keeps the, the 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 principles, the, the the timeless principles, you know, current in your spirit in your mind, and that's the thing about the peoples is that they they did basically take the basic principles, the basic harmonic truths, what worked, and just work as that is a template. Master Goethe, it was he who said that basically. If if I'm paraphrasing, of course. But if basically what is being done is not using the classics as a foundation, then you can't trust it, nor should you trust it. Because basically, if you if you recognize, even if it sounds fresh and viral new, its foundation is still the classical elements that have groomed us to recognize them as such. So I do have that advantage, and I take full and complete advantage of it, because Goethe was also reminded that it was easy for him to say certain things because of his wealth and position, which made him say, that's all the more reason why I say it, because I know that I'm in a unique position and say things that others of my contemporaries cannot say and get away with. Um, I, I have the opportunity to push my music in ways that many of my contemporaries don't, at least right now, so I do. Don't Break My Balls is one of those songs, isn't it? Where you, you can, and first of all, it's a fantastic recording, uh, the way the elements come together. Uh, Thank you. But also uh, just in the sentiment of drawing a line in the sand. Well, it, it's kind of like I said before to, to other journalists who've asked about that. Um, it's the unofficial model, state model of Italy. 
you know, and it doesn't matter whether you're an Italian or a hyphenated Italian, Italian-American, Italian-Australian, it doesn't matter. That's, that sentiment is like, hey, don't bust my boss. It's like, you know, and, and that's kind of the culture. It's like, look, Italian culture, they're not dogs. You bet they're like cats. It's their way or the highway. I, and I'm a cat person. Understanding that is like, you know, you have to take cats as they come. You cannot treat them like dogs. They're just a different species, a different part of the brain. Um, as an artist, it's actually wonderful because it's like the right side of the brain for an artist as well. Don't Break My Balls was a late entry in the project. Isn't that correct? In fact, I had finished the project and I was so relieved. I was so relieved because I was like, it, it, you know, you pour your everything into these things. And it's always an immensely cathartic but terribly exhausting experience. Um, and I remember, you know, me and, my, me and my family, we keep a place in the mountains uh, to go get some air and, and, and just, just change the environment for ourselves. And I can remember getting up early the first morning back in the mountains, uh, looking at the beautiful mountains and having, like, you know, a wake and bake day. Just get up, have a nice fucking smoke, bring the mountains. And the first thing I had was, bum, ba, da, ba, don't break my balls, don't break my balls. And I, songs come to me, but they often come where I can say, okay, cool, I can save that for the next project. I like that. This was immediately like, uh-uh, this is not for your next project. This came with like a direction that's clear. No, you're not finished yet. You got to record this. Then you're finished. So it was actually the last two songs I recorded because then by, by, by my nature being what it is, I wasn't going to you know bring myself in the studio just for one fucking song. I was at least going to ostensibly, you know, let's say make a B-side, if you will. So I then thought, okay, after I worked out Don't Break My Balls, I thought, okay, what's the second song going to be? And then that, that second song was Her Kiss. Well, I'm so glad that Don't Break My Balls insisted its way into the world. It's a monster cut. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you respond to it because it just validates that it was very insistent that I put it on the record. Thank you so much for your time and energy today, Sananda. It has been truly a great privilege. Well, for me, it's a privilege because I'm finally able to get, you know, in the right you know, context, in the appropriate place that, you know, I'm, I'm a beetle for life. And I, I mean that just in the sense that these, these are my fathers and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for it. I'm proud of it. And they're as much a part of my everyday consciousness as Bach and, you know, and, and Miles Davis. It's just that's who I am. And I'm just very, very grateful that they showed up because I would be you know, some completely different bitches if it wasn't for them. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe 
give us a rating and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story. <laughs>